Hello. Oh, if I could encourage you in the room to sort of sit-ish. And, uh, yeah. Um, hi, I'm Dave. I um, come to the Cotton site, as James said. James also actually just did my sermon in his, what he said just before this. So, you know, there's not much more for me to do. We're going to be talking today about uh, who Jesus is. <laughs> if I was a professional preacher, I'd have a really good Father's Day related um, introduction for you. I, I don't. Uh, what I've got is, dads like to eat meals, don't they? That, that's it. Um, we're going to be continuing our series of meals with Jesus that we're calling Just Eat. And we're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Um, we had a, an excursion last week into a meals that some birds had of some seed on a path. But we're back to meals with humans this week. What I love about Scripture, and, and the Gospels especially, is that there's more, than, there's more than one of them. I love the fact that there's four, and they all put the, the stories, the stories that John says, if they were all written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world. They, they put them all in different orders and in different ways to make slightly different points. They're all pointing to the same Jesus, but they're doing it in slightly different ways. And here in Luke, for the first eight chapters, Jesus has set up this question of, of who is Jesus. And we've got some pretty big hints. There's some songs about him in chapter one. There's the various things that he's done over this time. But the question still hasn't been explicitly answered. And this, in chapter nine, is where we get that explicit answer of who Jesus is. So we'll be reading not just the feeding of the 5,000 story in Luke 9, but also the little bit before and the little bit after, because Luke sets up this story and what it means really, really well. It's really helpful for a preacher. There's questions, and he answers them. The first six verses of Luke covered Jesus sending out his disciples to do the things that he was doing to to preach the gospel and to um, heal the sick. And we'll start reading in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about what was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. And he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learnt about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have two, five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go out and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. 
Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Father, I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit, both the speaker and the hearers, that we might know you better, know the son you sent better. Amen. So Herod's in his his throne room and he's wondering who Jesus is, as you might, given all the stories that he's heard about him. But he doesn't know. And he asks the advisors and they give three possible answers. Maybe, maybe he's John the Baptist, the one that you had beheaded. That would be worrying news for him. Maybe he's Elijah. Or maybe he's one of the other prophets come back from the dead. These three options all make sense. John the Baptist was the first prophet they'd had in Israel for 400 years. If anyone could continue ministry after death, even handing it over to Jesus, maybe not literally coming back from the dead, but maybe Jesus carrying on his ministry in that spirit of John the Baptist. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist is that candidate. He's the only contemporary that that's possible. Elijah makes sense as well. He's the only prophet in the Old Testament who doesn't die. He gets taken up to heaven. And so there was always this possibility that he might come back. And sure enough, Malachi, in the last book of the Old Testament, prophesies that Elijah would indeed come before the Messiah to prepare the people for the Messiah's coming, for the, for the one whom God was to send, the ruler. And failing that, maybe he's one of the other prophets. The greatest prophet in Jewish thought, both then and now, is Moses. Maybe... He's Moses. Moses even prophesied that one like him would come and lead the people. Maybe this is that time. But Herod doesn't know. And he doesn't get that meeting with Jesus until Jesus' trial. And even then, he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand. He still doesn't know who Jesus is. But we, we're more fortunate because we have Luke to guide us. And he gives us this story that tells us who Jesus is. He's laid out these options. Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? Is he one of the prophets? And Luke gives us this story to let us know. This story is a, a sort of parable enacted. It's what John in John's gospel would call a sign. It's a sign of who Jesus is. Jesus does this deliberately to show who he is as a sign to the people there and to us. So the disciples returned from their mission trip and Jesus took them away, perhaps for a debrief. But the crowds came, as they always did. And Jesus had compassion upon them, as they always did, as he always did. And he healed them. And he preached the gospel. We don't have the words that he spoke, but they probably are included elsewhere in Luke. He probably preached the same sermons over and over again. Spoiler alert. Um, that's what traveling preachers do. But he preached to them... And he was probably saying words like, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And they were enraptured by that. And it gets to late afternoon, and they still haven't eaten. And the disciples come to him and with a very sensible suggestion. Send them away. They can go to the local towns, maybe get lodging, definitely get some food. It's dangerous to travel at night in that area or in a remote place. This is not a question that 
there's not a suggestion that comes out of a lack of faith or anything like that. It's just a perfectly sensible suggestion, caring for those people who are hungry. And it would be dangerous to leave it later. So the fact that Jesus ignores them is not because it was a bad suggestion. It's because he wanted to enact something. It's because he knew the time had come to reveal in a new way who he was. But of course, he doesn't just do that. He gives them a cheeky question first. You give them something to eat. He was continually winding people up. And he does it here with his disciples. He's not asking that because they should be able to do something. He's asking that. He's asking them to do that so that they can understand that what's about to happen is not natural. It's not of them. They have to verbally process. And you can almost see them looking at each other in the text going, why does he always, why can't we, we don't, I just, I mean, what? They say, look, we, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. There's enough to feed a family. We know from the other gospels that it's the little boys brings it along, but he doesn't even get a mention, poor lad, in Luke. Um, this, so, I should have said, this, this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, so we have these four perspectives on this event, but the little boy is not even mentioned here, just what he brought, the five loaves and the two fish. We can't buy food for the crowd, there's, there's at least 5,000 people here, we don't know whether it was mainly men and therefore there was roughly 5,000, or whether they were just counting family groups, so... Maybe they were counting each family group as, and so there might have been 10 or 20,000 people there. There's far too many people to feed with five people's lunch. And then Jesus reveals what he's about to reveal. And this is what he does. He takes the bread and he blesses it. He divides it among the people via his disciples. Everyone eats and is satisfied. And there's more left over at the end than there was at the beginning. What does this tell us about Jesus? Is he maybe Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? Is this a Moses type thing that he's doing? Well, let's have a look. We'll go with Elijah first. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. And he doesn't really have any bread-based miracles to his name. He, in his ministry, takes the role of the crowd in this. He is hungry in the wilderness twice. And God gives him bread from heaven. God gives him food, provided by angels, provided by ravens. But he gives him bread when he has nothing, when he's depressed, when he's on his own, when he thinks it's all lost. God feeds him with bread from heaven when he is hungry. He's the crowd in this sort of... um, enacted parable. So Jesus is greater. He's the provider, whereas Elijah was the consumer of the heavenly bread. But Elijah's ministry doesn't finish when Elijah is taken up to heaven, because he has a son. And what I mean by son is not flesh and blood, but the Bible often uses the word son to mean someone who carries on the family business, someone who carries on the ministry of of their father. Elisha is that son. There's many prophets in Israel, but Elisha is one who becomes the son of Elijah. And the way he does it is really important. They go through the Jordan together on dry ground. The heavens open, and Elijah goes up to heaven, and a spirit descends upon Elisha. 
is the spirit of Elijah. And the person with the spirit of the father is the son. So he becomes the son of Elijah and he carries on Elijah's ministry. But not just that. It's not just a part of Elijah's spirit that Elijah gets. It's a double portion. It means he's not just a son, he's an eldest son. You'll know if you've ever read Jane Austen that the eldest son gets twice as much as the rest of the children. That's so you can keep the estate together so that you don't have to sell the property and split it up and divide it. He can have the whole house, the whole manor house, whatever it is. And it's his then responsibility to care for the younger brothers and to care for any unmarried daughters that he might have, but he gets a lion's share. He's the eldest son. That's what Elisha gets. He gets a double portion. He is the eldest son, the one who is inheriting the family business. We know that for a bunch of reasons, but one of the most significant is that God asks Elijah to do three things, one of which is anoint Elisha, which he does. The other two are anointing two kings, which he doesn't do. But Elisha goes and does them because it's the continuation of Elijah's ministry in Elisha. And Elijah does so many miracles, it's almost embarrassing. He's the most miraculous of the prophets of the Old Testament. Maybe Jesus is this guy. Maybe Jesus is Elisha, the continuation of Elijah's ministry. Well, let's look at how Jesus was declared to be son of God. How Jesus was um, commissioned in his ministry. He, like Elisha, goes down into the Jordan with John the Baptist. Like Elisha, the heavens open. And like Elisha, a spirit descends on him. But this time it is not the spirit of Elijah. It's not the spirit of John the Baptist. It's the spirit of God. Because he is the son of God. He's greater than even Elisha. And it's not a portion of God's spirit. It's not even a double portion of God's spirit. Jesus is not the most exalted of all the creatures. It's the spirit without measure. He receives the spirit of God without measure for his ministry, declaring him to be very God of very God, true light from true light. Begotten, not made of one being with the Father. He's the one who doesn't go around doing the works of Elijah or the works of Elijah. He goes around doing exactly what he sees the Father doing. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He's greater even than Elisha. And he shows this in a, in a fascinating way. Elisha does all these miracles, and Jesus basically repeats them all, but does them better. They're <laughs> just Elisha's miracles, but better. So Elisha makes an axe head float on the water, saving a man's livelihood. He would have lost his axe. He wouldn't have been able to do his job without it. Jesus makes a man walk on the water. And when that man starts sinking, he picks out his hand and saves not just his livelihood, but his life. And he does all this while he himself is walking on the water. He's greater than Elijah and Elisha. Elisha raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. Jesus in Luke 8, so if we'd just been reading through this, we'd have had this fresh in our minds. Jesus in Luke 8 raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, but not only does that, he raises Lazarus, a man who'd been dead for days, who'd begun to smell, who was wrapped in grave clothes from the dead. Jesus is greater than Elisha. And here in 2 Kings chapter 4, 
Elisha takes enough bread that would feed 10 people and he uses it, he blesses it, divides it and gives it out and it feeds 100. But here Jesus takes enough bread for five people, half as much, and uses it to feed 5,000, maybe 10,000 or 20,000. Jesus is greater than even the greatest of the miracle workers of the Old Testament. So maybe Jesus is carrying on John the Baptist ministry. Maybe, he's, uh, maybe John the Baptist ministry didn't end at his death. Maybe Jesus carried it on. We know in that moment of baptism, though, that Jesus doesn't receive the spirit of John the Baptist. Jesus receives the spirit of God. And it's at that moment where Jesus' ministry starts and he starts to do the things that, that we know him for, the preaching of the kingdom and the healing of the sick, the signs and the wonders that revealed who he was. And at the same time, John's ministry fades. He said himself, I must decrease because he must increase. He stops being the prophet of Israel and lets Jesus take over. If anything, John is the younger son of Eli Elijah. Like if Elisha is the eldest son, he inherits the miracles and he inherits the prestige and he inherits foreign kings knowing all about him and coming to see him. John the Baptist inherits from Elijah the reproach, the exile, the living in the desert, the wearing clothes of animals that he's killed, the eating stuff that he can find, the having nothing and still being brave enough to, speaking, to speak truth to power. That's who John is. He is the Elijah who was to come, the Elijah that Malachi prophesied about. That's what Jesus says about him. And Jesus' ministry is greater. His message is greater. John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's coming. It's close. Get yourselves ready. Jesus preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. That's who Jesus is, greater than John the Baptist. So perhaps he's a prophet, come back to life from the Old Testament. I mean, Moses said there would be one. Maybe the time has come for that, for that to happen. Maybe this bread is, is the same as Moses' bread that Moses gave the people in the wilderness. Moses was the, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He talked with God face to face. He spent 40 days up on a mountain without eating and drinking, communing with God, receiving the covenant law, the covenant that saw people through thousands of years, the covenant that was good and righteous and just. It came through him. Now, Moses' bread-based miracle happened in the wilderness. You'll know the story that the people of Israel were taken out of Egypt with signs and wonders, with an outstretched arm of God, defeating the gods of Egypt one by one. Until that moment where they came out in triumph, plundering the Egyptians, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And after that, they spent a year on Mount Sinai with receiving the law, this law that was 
that was just and righteous, this law which not only told them what to do, but told them how to repair their relationship with God when they mucked up, which they often did. They received this, this law which, which was more righteous and just than the law of the other nations. What other nation had been taken out of Egypt? What other nation had received this law? This has all happened within the last year, and as soon as they get into the wilderness, they start to moan. <laughs> Never related to any characters more than Israel in that moment. How often does God save me out of situations, and then I immediately wish I was back there. I immediately start to moan. And they, they wish there was cucumbers, don't we all? They're, they say, where are the cucumbers? We had cucumbers in Egypt. I wish we were back there in slavery. And after this shocking betrayal, God doesn't destroy them. There are some quail-based shenanigans, which we don't have time to go into. But God feeds them with bread from heaven through Moses. And there's some significant points about this bread which I need to explain. This bread falls out of the sky each night. They have to go and collect it each morning. They only collect enough for that day because if they collect more, it rots. This bread, um, this bread uh, is different in that on Fridays they do go out and pick enough for two days. <laughs> they have to trust in God's provision on the days when they go and get it, and they have to trust in God's provision on the day when they have to get two lots. Trust it won't rot, so they don't have to go and get it any on the Sabbath and break the Sabbath by working. This bread is teaching them. It's a lesson like the bread of Jesus. It's a lesson for them. It's not just provision. It's a lesson that every day, on the days when they gather and the day when they don't, they need to trust in God, that God will provide through the wilderness for 40 years every single day. Every single day, this, again, enacted parable is telling them, God will provide for you. And God will still provide for you when you reach the promised land and you don't have to do this anymore. But God will provide for you all the way through the desert despite your rebellion. And in every moment, on every day, even when we read terrible other stories and numbers about their betrayals and their worship of other gods, every day that manna still appears. And every day God is gracious to them for 40 years. So maybe Jesus' bread is like this bread. Well, it's even better. The manna in the wilderness, the people had to go and get. But this bread, they had to sit and take and eat. That's all they had to do. The manna in the wilderness was just enough for that day. But this bread grew and grew. It was enough for all time. There was more left at the end than there was at the beginning. It wasn't a bread that rotted after time. It was a bread that carried on. Ever, who could feed more and more people. If 10,000 more of the crowd had turned up right at the end, there'd have been enough for them. If 20,000 people after that, there'd have been enough for them. This bread from heaven was enough for anyone who came to take and eat. Jesus' bread was better than Moses. Jesus was greater even than Moses. He was the one who Moses prophesied about the new Moses who was to come, but he was greater, far greater than even Moses. In fact, he was greater than all the prophets. We don't have time, obviously, 
to go through all the prophets. But I just want to read you from Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. This bread that was prophesied in Isaiah, this Jesus who is prophesied about him in Isaiah, he is the one the prophets were talking about. He was not a prophet come back from the dead. He was the one that they were looking for, as Hebrew says, the one that they were searching in the spirit of God to find, that the one that they were talking about, the one that they were expecting, greater than they. How does this bread Isaiah talks about get given? Well, it's as a result of what Isaiah's poetry in Isaiah 52 and 53. There's this suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And this suffering servant comes, and as a result of his sacrifice, as a result of his sacrifice in Isaiah 54, the barren woman sings. The barren woman has children. In Isaiah 55, there's this bread, there's this milk, there's this wine that comes without price, that is distributed to all who have need, who comes and feeds every single of the hungry people who want to be fed. This is the bread that Isaiah was talking about, and this is the God, this is the person in Jesus who comes to fulfill that prophecy. In his death, And in his resurrection, he fulfills that suffering servant and he brings this bread to all who have need of it. And that's why at the end of this story, Luke, if we haven't got this message, he just spells it out because he puts this little vignette afterwards. Jesus is praying with his disciples and, and he asks the same question that Herod had. What do the crowds say that I am? And they answer exactly the same, almost word for word, what Herod's advisors or what Herod had heard. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of long, of long ago had come back to life. Excuse me. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question, isn't it? Who do we say that Jesus is? It's the question of questions. The question that we all need to answer. Well, Peter answered it. You are God's Messiah. You're God's anointed one. You're the one who the prophets were talking about. You're the one who Moses was expecting. You're the one who fulfilled Elisha's ministry, who eclipsed even Elisha's ministry, who spoke truth to power, who performed miracles, who brought the kingdom. But what is this bread? What is he giving to those who are hungry? What is he providing for those in need? Well, we get a clearer explanation in John's version of this story, in John chapter 6. After John, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he then walks on the water. John puts that story straight away to link them like that. And then we get, as we get often in John, these discourses, these big speeches, these conversations with groups of people. And 
This one is called the Bread of Life Discourse by theologians because he's talking about the Bread of Life. And it's all related. They're asking him questions about, what is this bread? What is this bread that you gave us? And this is what Jesus says. We'll read from John chapter 6 and verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This bread is my flesh that I will give for the life of the world. And in this year that's been so difficult, in a year where we haven't been able to gather together to eat and drink body and blood of Christ in the bread and the wine, in, the, in, the, in this year where we haven't been able to do that together and and literally break the bread and, and share it. And this year that where so much we thought was needed has fallen away. And so much we didn't realize we need, we've felt the lack of. In this year, we still have been held together by that bread of life. We still, if we're still here, if we still have clung on, if we still believe, we believe because the Spirit of God has been ministering to us the bread of life, Jesus himself, the presence of Jesus in us. If we're still here, it's because the Father has hidden us in the body of Christ. It's because the Father has given us his true and only Son to be our food. And this is the meal. All the other meals will fade away. This is the meal that only expands the more people eat it. This is the meal that once 5,000 have eaten it, once it's gone from the 12, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, to the 5,000, symbolizing the 5,000 tribes of the world, it can feed 10,000 more tribes and 20,000 more tribes, and on and on to the end of the age where there'll be a banquet, and every tribe and every tongue and every nation will gather around the throne, feasting, on the bread of life, feasting on Christ himself. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you that you feed us with the body and blood of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Grant that we may live with him. Grant that we may invite many more people to this feast. Grant that we may serve him in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen.